Book one, chapters four to five of ten books on architecture. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. Ten books on architecture by Vitrivius. Translated by Morris Hickey Morgan. Chapter four. The site of a city. One. For fortified towns, the following general principles are to be observed. First comes the choice of a very healthy site. Such a site will be high, neither misty nor frosty, and in a climate neither hot nor cold, but temperate. Further, without marshes in the neighborhood. For when the morning breezes blow toward the town at sunrise, if they bring with them mists from the marshes, and mingle with the mist, the poisonous breath of the creatures of the marshes to be wafted into the bodies of the inhabitants, they will make the site unhealthy. Again, if the town is on the coast with a southern or western exposure, it will not be healthy, because in summer the southern sky grows hot at sunrise and is fiery at noon, while a western exposure grows warm after sunrise, is hot at noon, and at evening all aglow. 2. These variations in heat and the subsequent cooling off are harmful to the people living on such sites. The same conclusion may be reached in the case of inanimate things. For instance, nobody draws the light for covered wine-rooms from the south or west, but rather from north, since the quarter is never subject to change but is always constant and unshifting. So it is with granaries. Grain exposed to the sun's course soon loses its good quality, and provisions and fruit, unless stored in a place unexposed to the sun's course, do not keep long. 3. For heat is a universal solvent, melting out of things their power of resistance and sucking away and removing their natural strength with its fiery exhalations, so they grow soft and hence weak under its glow. We see this in the case of iron, which, however hard it may naturally be, yet, when heated thoroughly in a furnace fire, can be easily worked into any kind of shape, and still, if cooled, while it is soft and white-hot, it hardens again with a mere dip in cold water and takes on its former quality. 4. We may recognize the truth of this from the fact that in summer the heat makes everybody weak not only in unhealthy, but even in healthy places, and that in winter, even the most unhealthy districts are much healthier because they are given a solidity by the cooling off. Similarly, persons removed from cold countries to hot cannot endure it but waste away, whereas those who pass from hot places to the cold regions of the north not only do not suffer in health from the change of residence, but even gain by it. 5. It appears, then, that in founding towns we must beware of districts from which hot winds can spread abroad over the inhabitants. For while all bodies are composed of the four elements, that is, of heat, moisture, the earthy, and the air, yet there are mixtures according to natural temperament which make up the natures of all the different animals of the world, each after its kind. 6. Therefore, if one of these elements, heat, 
becomes predominant in any body whatsoever, it destroys and dissolves all the others with its violence. This defect may be due to violent heat from certain quarters of the sky, pouring into the open pores in too great proportion to admit of a mixture suited to the natural temperament of the body in question. Again, if too much moisture enters the channels of a body, and thus introduces disproportion. The other elements, adulterated by the liquid, are impaired, and the virtues of the mixture dissolve. This defect, in turn, may arise from the cooling properties of moist winds and breezes blowing upon the body. In the same way, increase or diminution of the proportion of air and of the earthy, which is natural to the body, may enfeeble the other elements, the predominance of the earthy being due to overmuch food, that of air to a heavy atmosphere. 7. If one wishes a more accurate understanding of all this, he need only consider and observe the natures of birds, fishes, and land animals, and he will thus come to reflect upon distinctions of temperament. One form of mixture is proper to birds, another to fishes, and a far different form to land animals. Winged creatures have less of the earthy, less moisture, heat in moderation, air in large amount. Being made up, therefore, of the lighter elements, they can more readily soar away into the air. Fish, with their aquatic nature, being moderately supplied with heat, and made up in part of air and the earthy, with as little moisture as possible, can more easily exist in moisture, for the re very reason that they have less of it than of the other elements in their bodies. And so, when they are drawn to land, they leave life and water at the same moment. Similarly, the land animals, being moderately supplied with the elements of air and heat, and having less of the earthy and a great deal of moisture, cannot long continue alive in the water, because their proportion of moisture is already abundant. 8. Therefore, if all this, as we have explained, our reason showing us that the bodies of animals are made up of the element, and these bodies, as we believe, giving away and breaking up as a result of excess or deficiency in this or that element, we cannot but believe that we must take great care to select a very temperate climate for the site of our city, since healthfulness is, as we have said, the first requisite. 9. I cannot too strongly insist upon the need of a return to the method of old times. Our ancestors, when about to build a town or an army post, sacrificed some of the cattle that were wont to feed on the site proposed, and examined their livers. If the livers of the first victims were dark-colored or abnormal, they sacrificed others to see whether the fault was due to disease or their food. They never began to build defensive works in a place until after they had made many such trials and satisfied themselves that good water and food had made the liver sound and firm. If they continued to find it abnormal, they argued from this that the food and water supply found in such a place would be just as unhealthy for man, and so they moved away and changed to another neighborhood, healthfulness being their chief object. 10. 
That pasture and food may indicate the healthful qualities of a site is a fact which can be observed and investigated in the case of certain pastures in Crete, on each side of the river Pothereus, which separates the two Cretan states of Gnosis and Gortina. There are cattle at pasture on the right and left banks of that river, but while the cattle that feed near Gnosis have the usual spleen, those on the other side near Gortina have no perceptible spleen. On investigating the subject, physicians discovered on this side a kind of herb which the cattle chew and thus make their spleen small. The herb is therefore gathered and used as a medicine for the cure of splenetic people. The Cretans call it Hasplenon. From food and water, then, we may learn whether sites are naturally unhealthy or healthy. 11. If the walled town is built among the marshes themselves, provided that they are by the sea, with a northern or northeastern exposure, and are above the level of the seashore, the site will be reasonable enough. For ditches can be dug to let out the water to the shore, and also in times of storms the sea swells and comes back up into the marshes, where its bitter blend prevents the reproductions of the usual marsh creatures, while any that swim down from the higher levels to the shore are killed at once by the saltness to which they are unused. An instance of this may be found in the Gallic marshes surrounding Altino, Ravenna, Achillea, and other towns and places of the kind, close by marshes. They are marvelously healthy for the reason which I have given. 12. But marshes that are stagnant and have no outlets, either by rivers or ditches, like the Pomptine marshes, merely putrefy as they stand, emitting heavy, unhealthy vapors. A case of a town built in such a spot was old Sulpia in Apulia, founded by Diomede on his way back from Troy, or, according to some writers, by Elpias of Rhodes. Year after year there was sickness, until finally the suffering inhabitants came with a public petition to Marcus Hostilius, and got him to agree to seek and find them a proper place to which to remove their city. Without delay he made the most skilful investigations, and at once purchased an estate near the sea in a healthy place, and asked the senate and Roman people for permission to remove the town. He constructed the walls and laid out the house lots, granting one to each citizen for a mere trifle. This done, he cut an opening from a lake into the sea, and thus made of the lake a harbour for the town. The result is that now the people of Salpia live on a healthy site, and at a distance of only four miles from the old town. Chapter 5. The City Walls 1. After ensuring on these principles the healthfulness of the future city, and selecting a neighborhood that can supply plenty of foodstuffs to maintain the community, with good roads or else convenient rivers or seaports affording easy means of transport to the city, the next thing to do is to lay the foundations for the towers and walls. Dig down to solid bottom, if it can be found, and lay them therein, going as deep as the magnitude of the proposed work seems to require. They should be much thicker than the parts of the wall that will appear above ground, and their structure should be as solid as it can possibly be laid. 2. 
The towers must be projected beyond the line of the wall, so that an enemy wishing to approach the wall to carry it by assault may be exposed to the fire of missiles on his open flank from the towers on his right and left. Special pains should be taken that there be no easy avenue by which to storm the wall. The roads should be encompassed at steep points, and planned so as to approach the gates not in straight line, but from the right to the left, for, as a result of this, the right-hand side of the assailants, unprotected by their shields, will be next to the wall. Town should be laid out not as an exact square, nor with salient angles, but in circular forms, to give a view of the enemy from many points. Defense is difficult where there are salient angles, because the angle protects the enemy rather than the inhabitants. 3. The thickness of the wall should, in my opinion, be such that armed men meeting on top of it may pass one another without interference. In the thickness there should be set a very close succession of ties made of charred olive wood, binding the two faces of the wall together like pins, to give it a lasting endurance. For that is a material which neither decay, nor the weather, nor time can harm. For even though buried in the earth, or set in the water, it keeps sound and useful for ever. And so not only city walls, but substructures in general, and all walls that require a thickness like that of a city wall, will be long in failing to decay if tied in this manner. 4. The tower should be set at intervals of not more than a bowshot apart, so that, in case of an assault upon any one of them, the enemy may be repulsed with scorpions and other means of hurling missiles from the towers to the right and left. Opposite the inner side of every tower, the wall should be interrupted for a space the width of the tower, and have only a wooden flooring across leading to the interior of the tower but not firmly nailed. This is to be cut away by the defenders in case the enemy gets possession of any portion of the wall, and if the work is quickly done, the enemy will not be able to make his way to the other towers and the rest of the wall unless he is ready to face a fall. 5. The towers themselves must be either round or polygonal. Square towers are sooner shattered by military engines, for the battering rams pound their angles to pieces. But in the case of round towers they can do no harm, being engaged, as it were, in driving wedges to their centre. The system of fortification by wall and towers may be made safest by the addition of earthen ramparts, for neither rams, nor mining, nor other engineering devices can do them any harm. 6. The rampart form of defence, however, is not required in all places, but only where outside the wall there is a high ground from which an assault on the fortifications may be made over a level space lying between. In place of this kind, we must first make very wide deep ditches, next sink foundation for a wall in the bed of the ditch and build them thick enough to support an earthwork with ease. 7. Then, within this substructure, lay a second foundation, 
far enough inside the first to leave ample room for cohorts in line of battle to take position on the broad top of the rampart for its defence having laid these two foundations at this distance from another build cross walls between them uniting the outer and inner foundation in a comb-like arrangement set like the teeth of a saw with this form of construction the enormous burden of earth will be distributed into small bodies and will not lie with all its weight in one crushing mass so as to thrust out the substructures eight with regard to the material of which the actual wall should be constructed or finished there can be no definite prescription because we cannot obtain in all places the supplies that we desire dimension stone flint rubble burnt or unburnt brick use them as you find them for it is not every neighbourhood or particular locality that can have a wall built of burnt brick like that of babylon where there was plenty of asphalt to take the place of lime and sand and yet possibly each may be provided with materials of equal usefulness so that out of them a faultless wall may be built to last for ever. End of Book One, Chapter Five.